and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay, here with Father Howard, and on today's episode, our 52nd episode, we are discussing adoration. So let's get started. Hey, Lindsay, uh, 52, huh? Wow, that's that's uh, more than I ever dreamed that we, we might ever do. A whole uh, year worth for one a week. For a whole year worth. Well, we're going to talk about a little bit of adoration, which, uh, again, it's one of those things is uh, I know what it is unless you ask me to define it. Uh, I know what it is unless you ask me to describe it. I know what it, there are so many folks that believe they know what it is. But part of that is is that they really don't. Uh, and, and as a consequence, it, it, it comes almost to be, it almost becomes um, worshiping of idols rather than a genuine prayer form. And, and, and that is a danger uh, that, that we see in any number of times in the church. Um, it becomes almost idol worship rather than a way to open one's mind, one's being, one's uh, heart to, to the marvelous ways of God. And so I just want to walk through that a little bit because I believe that if we really grow into an understanding is that those who, who practice it, uh, Eucharistic adoration, uh, is that um, will find it to be much more enriching. I think also they will begin to discover a breadth of it that, that oftentimes most folks, I don't believe, really know that's there. And... Uh, and, and there might be those that, that have never uh, thought about it that might consider the possibilities. Now, it will not, it will not be for everybody. And I think that's, that's an important piece. And I think something that, that uh, you might say a theme that I have uh, kind of woven through a number of the talks is that not every aspect of, of Catholic worship, Catholic ritual, Catholic, whatever it might be, is going to meet or address everyone's needs. It's just not possible. It's a big church, and there are lots of cultures, lots of languages, lots of ways to pray. Uh, there is so much to it that, you know, ultimately, really, there is, there is no one piece other than, you might say, the Eucharist itself. There is no one piece that is going to address everybody's needs. And what you, as an individual, might find to be very prayerful, uh, I will not find prayerful at all. And it doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean I'm right. It simply means it doesn't touch my heart. It doesn't open me to, to a greater depth of prayer. I just had a conversation a couple of days ago, uh, and, and a person was speaking to me about how um, the reading of, of certain materials, uh, just she just found enlightening, and um, and I was sitting there and you know trying just you know listening intently, but in a way thinking to myself, I just find it some of the most boring stuff that I have ever experienced, and and but trying to listen carefully in 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 asking myself what does she see in it, because. Right now, where I am at this point in time, I don't see anything in it. And, and yet, she was obviously speaking of, of an experience that, um, 
that really touched her heart. But that's the whole point. It doesn't have to somehow touch my heart. Now, if there's resistance, that's one thing. But if, if it just doesn't speak to me, there are gobs, more ways, you might say, that really do speak to people in other ways. And to be able to appreciate that, you know, I don't have to necessarily run out and do what she did. But hopefully, if, if I truly am, you know, a Christian, if I am, you know, part of that family, the Catholic family, you might say, in the big, in the big sense of the, of, the, of the word, is that then to be able to appreciate what she finds prayerful. And who knows, maybe someday I will. Don't know. Uh, that's, that's not for me to, to worry about right at this point in time. But she finds it, finds it very prayerful. And, and so it's, uh, it's something that she really looked at and saying, wow, there is a lot here. God bless her. Uh, because obviously the Spirit is speaking to her through this material. So adoration is in, in, in very much that category. There are those who find it incredibly prayerful and take every opportunity they have. Um, there are others that just find it as a waste of time and or, or do not find it prayerful in any manner, shape, or form. And that's okay, too, because other things will speak to them, uh, whereas um, adoration will speak to other people. doesn't take away from it in any manner, shape, or form. It just recognizes that we are all different, and, and different prayer methods or prayer ways of prayer do or may not speak to people's hearts. And it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. Sometimes no. you may enjoy adoration, sometimes you may not. It's just exactly. Depends. Exactly. A person might find themselves in an experience and saying, well, that was really very nice, very prayerful. Uh, you're right. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And unfortunately, though, it's too often we as human beings, you know, we, we, we speak in absolutes. And, and so somehow if, if I don't, you know, appreciate adoration like they do, then I must be bad. Um, or if they don't appreciate the prayer that I do like I do, then they must be crazy. Um, and, and I think that's, that, that's one of the messages in so many ways that, that Jesus, you know, spoke to in, in any number of ways is that, again, the Father's ways are mysterious and, and one does not control necessarily how God does or does not, you know, touch the hearts. And, and so he went to, Jesus, by he, he went to uh, prostitutes and tax collectors and, and Romans and centurions and, and all of these people that so many others labeled as bad. And yet any number of times he would tell the leadership, the Jewish leadership of his day and age, they will enter the kingdom way before you do. So be careful. Be careful. Um, so it, it's, again, adoration is one of, those, one of those topics when it comes to church and, and uh, church life and spiritual life that sometimes there can be such a, an all-or-nothing approach that both sides, uh, both sides, somehow miss an opportunity to appreciate what each other has to offer. And I believe both sides miss an opportunity to, to hear the word of God in their lives. Um, when, when you become so absolute that there's only one way and my way is the right way.
So let's let's begin, you know, with with adoration. First of all, we, we need to talk a little bit about terms because you know we we toss around the term adoration, and, you know, those kinds of things that um, you you know sometimes we aren't quite sure what we're talking about. So when it comes to adoration, that is a general term of when people take the opportunity and take the time to pray before the exposed blessed sacrament. And what I mean by exposed is usually it is in a monstrance or it might be in a saboria, but usually it's in a monstrance where the host is exposed, can be seen in the center, and the monstrance being a very uh, artistic or uh, a beautiful artifact where um, there is a, a particular, you know, what they call the luna. That is what the the host goes in, the body of Christ goes in, and then it is inserted into the center of the monstrance. This uh, lar- very, usually a large and very ornate, many times very ornate. Although now you will begin to see some that are more recent where, you know, it's not nearly as ornate, much more plain, which for some people, you know, the ornateness of these large monstrances uh, can be distracting. And, uh, and the plainer ones help the focus. So adoration is the practice of, of, of praying somehow, some form of prayer before the exposed Blessed Sacrament, which is in a monstrance, a holder for the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist. Benediction is a blessing. Um, oftentimes, people will interchange the word benediction and adoration. Benediction is a piece of the adoration ritual in which there is a blessing with the monstrance making the sign of the cross. Do you bless your like? Do you do the sign of the cross yourself then when that happens? Uh, when yes, when people are blessed, the appropriate response is to sign is to bless cross. yourself. So the priest or the deacon or whomever is a priest or deacon is that they are literally making the sign of the cross with the monstrance, and people are then signing themselves. So it is a blessing. The blessed sacrament is the actual Eucharist, is the body of Christ. Um, a host which has been consecrated and becomes the the body of the risen Christ. So that's specifically what the Blessed Sacrament. Um, Eucharistic adoration, again, is is another term for adoration. Many people shorten it to adoration because God and God alone can be adored. Adoration of anything else is idol worship. So it's, it's, a, it's a very specific term when we speak of adoration or Eucharistic adoration. We do not adore statues. We do not adore buildings. We do not adore, we adore God and God alone. And so the Eucharistic adoration is a shortened, is a, the longer title, you might say, and probably more accurate as to speak of what we are actually uh, speaking about. The exposition of, of the Blessed Sacrament is the ritual where literally uh, we, we take it, you know, there's a song, as you are aware, there's a song, and during that song, we take the Blessed Sacrament out of the tabernacle, place it in the luna, or a luna with hat, which has a host in it already, and put that, in, insert that into the, um, the, 
Monstrance. Monstrance, yes. <laughs> That's what I was into the monstrance. And place it on an altar or on a pedestal of some sort so that people are able to uh, see, you know, the Blessed Sacrament there uh, in, in their presence. Now, um, can you do exposition without an opening song? Could you just bring it out? Yes, you can. Okay. Uh, yes, you can. I mean, there are multiple ways to do this. Uh, depending upon what you're looking for uh, will make it more or less more solemn. Mm -hmm. You know, there is, you know, the solemn exposition, and they have kind of steps for that, much more simple. Uh, again, there's all sorts of ways that people can, uh, can experience uh, this time of, of prayer. A monstrance versus a saboria. The monstrance is, like I said, a very ornate stand, uh, you know, uh, holder for the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, a saboria is really a, a container uh, for the Eucharist that oftentimes is placed uh, in a tabernacle uh, that the hosts are placed inside the saboria. The saboria is what we use during Mass when ministers take the Eucharist out to people, uh, the, the hosts are in a some sort of saboria. So if you're doing adoration with a saboria, you're not necessarily seeing... That is correct. ...Jesus, and it could be in the tabernacle, so it's not necessarily out in front of anyone? That is correct. Okay. So again, different ways, mm -hmm. um, and it's different. And, now, and I've seen both. I've done both. Uh, again, more solemn, less solemn. Sometimes it depends on the circumstance. Sometimes it depends on where you are, the, the literal location, the place, the chapel, whatever, or outside. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it really makes a difference. And uh, like I said, there's really no one set way. See, that's, that's part of it too, is that, you know, a lot of times people, um, they speak and they can only speak to their experience. And there is just a myriad of experiences out there. <laughs> And in a number of times that someone has said, oh, no, you can't do it that way. Well, sure you can. You, you just haven't experienced that. And, and so it's, it's trying to sometimes help people to open their eyes to other possibilities. And that it's not always this high, solemn type of thing. Uh, and, and the other point being here is that Jesus can speak to us in lots of different ways. There is no one way to, to, to do this. And so uh, sometimes, again, in our, in our knowing this thing is right or not, you know, we, we believe that somehow this is the only way it can be done. It'd be like saying that somehow, you know, the Irish can only pray like Germans and Germans can only pray, you know, like Australians. And Australians, you know, it's like you go to various countries and there are a myriad of ways that people experience prayer, how they pray, when they pray. You know, some churches stand, some churches kneel, some churches, you know, have, they have smudge pots with Native Americans that, you know, bless the four uh, directions in the, at the beginning of their liturgy. There are a myriad of ways to do this. We just haven't necessarily been exposed to it all. Mm -hmm. And the more you are, the richness and the depth you begin to see. That, that's what I find in, incredible. We speak of the real presence. Um, and, and for us as Catholics, we believe that, you know, under the appearances of bread and wine is the true body and blood of the risen Christ. 
that uh, it is not a symbol, it's not a representation, it's not a, uh, you know, a hint at, doesn't, you know, it's not a sign pointing. It is the real presence of the body and blood of Christ under the appearances of bread and wine. And so that's when we talk of real presence. So kind of, you know, when you start looking at this, um, what, is, what do we begin, you might say, to see as a, as a starting point? And when it comes to adoration, adoration in many ways, adoration is meaningless. It is empty. It is idol worship if you do not start with the celebration of Eucharist. When they talk about Eucharist being the source and the summit, and that is what the Second Vatican Council speaks of. Somebody mentioned a short time ago that I need to uh, maybe talk about the Second Council. I use it a lot and talk about it a lot that there are a lot of folks saying, what are you talking about? That'd be a good one. That would be a good one. That would be a that would probably be a lengthy one. But nonetheless, I digress. Series, our Vatican Council series. Yes, is that um, the Second Vatican Council said, said that the Eucharist, the celebrating of the Eucharist, the Mass, is the source and sub- summit. Everything moves toward it, and everything we experience flows from it. Um, it it's it is you know the, the pinnacle of of, of of all. And so Eucharistic adoration has to somehow start there. Because if it doesn't, it, it, it becomes um, meaningless. The, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy from the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, the Constitution, that was the first document written in, in December of 1963. That's how important they saw the Eucharist liturgy to be that they had to start there. And they used nine guiding principles. I'm just going to briefly mention it. But they used nine guiding principles in, in order to, to really talk about why do we do what we do, what do we do, what meaning does it have, how is it rooted, and all of those kinds of things. So they used nine basic principles. The first was that Christ is really present. And, and we think, well, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. But how much that wasn't there when you looked, when you experience sometimes the liturgy uh, before the Second Council, is that you wondered who were they worshiping? You know, were they worshiping Jesus? Was it about Jesus? Or was it about Mary? Was it about the latest saint? Was it about the latest movement? What, what was it really about? And, and so they talked about that, Christ truly present. The second one is that the earthly liturgy is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. The Eucharist, you might say, is a key bridge between the here and now and what is yet to come. It's a foretaste of what we believe to be the end game, you might say, that God has in store for us all that heavenly banquet. Third, um, again, it, it mentions very specifically that the Eucharist, when I mean Eucharist, the Mass, the Eucharist is the source and summit of who we are, which is interesting as we look at what we're talking about today, about, you know, the, um, uh, the gift of Sunday and everything, and trying to help people come to be aware and understand what it means for the liturgy to be source and summit. 
because I think even in our own day and age, we, have, we lose some of that, and that's always dangerous when, when we lose some of that. Um, another guiding principle is there needed to be full participation. This was not Father Howard's show. This was not the bishop's show. This was not, you know, a priest fill in the name show. Is that there was to be full participation, active participation. The congregation were not simply bystanders, were not simply watching. They were not simply there to pray, pay, and obey. They were to have full and active participation. Sometimes I think we forget a little bit of that, too, by some of the things that we do. So that would probably be why you had such a hard time wanting to go to virtual doing live streaming. It is. I mean, because without a congregation, and, and that's one of the things that I really hesitated, and, and we had a little of that con, con, uh, con communication or con, conversation, conversation <laughs> that I need to have at least some people there. Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to be there. Uh, when I look at these principles... I couldn't bring myself to simply go in a room and tape it and then put it online. I needed to be celebrating with someone. That's, that's, that's my whole background. Um, without that, I, I, there's a serious, some serious questions that I would have. And so, and so that's, that's really a, a, key, a key thing. Um, the revisions of liturgy were also based on sound theological historical, and pastoral investigation. Sometimes when we looked at it, we again, it's that whole thing of why are we doing what we do? It's like that little story where the child goes to mom and says, Mom, why do we cut the ends off the ham before we put it in the pan and cook it? Mom says, I don't know. Let's ask Grandma. Grandma, why do we cut the ends off the ham? Grandma says, I don't know. Let's ask great-grandma. And so they go to great-grandma and say, Great-grandma, why do we cut the ends of the ham off before we put it in the pan to cook it? And her comment of great-grandma's comment is, Because I didn't have a pan big enough. (laughs) Again, we forget why we do. What we do, and so the investigative part, looking at scripture, looking at history, looking at tradition, looking at ritual, all of this added to a rediscovery and a renewal of of why we do what we do. And, And bringing that back and saying, we need to refocus here. We need to refocus because without it, we're forgetting, or without it, somehow, you know, the fact that Jesus is present could even be lost. So it, it was based on that. Scripture was key. There is now more scripture involved in the Mass than there ever was before the Second Council. Uh, before the Second Council is that you had pretty much the same cycle. Every year was the same. Uh, once the Second Council came in, you had a three-year cycle for the Sundays, and you have a two, cycle, two cycles for weekdays. We use now probably more scripture from all of the books probably than any christian tradition out there um it's the broadening and the breadth of the sacred text otherwise it was very narrow and so they had to relook at that again again why do we do what we do uh catechesis was essential and i think it's as essential today as it was back then we still um need to do a whole lot better 
when it comes to people understanding the Eucharist, adoration, and we, we need to do a whole lot better. Um, the vernacular was to be used. We need to understand what we're doing. And you can't understand what you're doing if you can't speak a language. <clears throat> Symbol only goes so far. If there is to be full and participation, active participation, then it needs to be in a language that people can actually hear, understand, and speak. That's why it's so hard for, for folks when you go to a foreign country. You know the ritual, but boy, you miss a whole lot when you don't know the language. Mm -hmm. And the same thing sometimes, and, and for, for me, when I see today, is the temptation to go back to Latin. I think that's a big mistake. No one speaks Latin. Most of the clergy, I suspect, that want to use Latin don't know Latin. They know how to parrot words. They memorize it, but they don't know Latin um, unless they've actually studied the language. But that's great. But you could say that about Swahili. You could say that about Croatian languages. You could, say, you, you could use any language, and it would be the same result in many ways for the people who are there. They don't know what they're saying and they can't participate as fully after language. So that was that use of vernacular was terribly important. And the other piece that was terribly important was that there can be cultural adaptations. You know, you go to uh, a community that has African Americans, there are going to be adaptations. Native Americans, adaptations. Irish, Polish, German, Italian, adaptations. Mm -hmm. Growing up, I had no clue what Our Lady of Guadalupe was. I had heard the story. I had no clue how it was celebrated. You go to a parish like St. Joe's in Waukesha, where I was, they know how to celebrate <laughs> a feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And, it, and it's like, what a treasure to begin to understand what that feast meant. Growing up in a German family, I simply did, was not, I did not appreciate the cultural adaptations that were there took me a long time to actually come to grow in an awareness of that. Just as somebody would come to grow in awareness of what the cultural adaptations were growing up in a rural community in Dodge County in the state of Wisconsin. There are cultural adaptations. And it's growing in an appreciation lest we again fall into this mentality that says, my way is the only possible way it can, it can you know, be expressed. And so when you look at adoration, you apply those same principles, but it always has to start first and foremost with Eucharist. A little bit of history, because you need to know where you come from in order to know where you are, and you need in order to then to know where you're going to go to. A little bit of history when it comes to Eucharistic adoration. The origin of the Eucharist itself was found in the context of an ordinary meal. Okay, People gathered around a meal, usually invite the neighbors or whatever, and they would break bread, and in doing so, they would uh, experience the presence of Christ. It was bringing together you know, the, um, you know, the, the cultural milieu, um, what was the norm, and bringing a religious context to it. Um, so it's, it's, the emphasis was on eating and drinking. Um, there was no ritual to speak of. 
It was something you did, not something you watched. It was something you participated in. Again, that's where some of that history comes in. Um, no one went to a house, you know, in Jerusalem at that time and, and was told to sit in the corner. Uh, Jesus, you know, said, take and eat. He didn't say, sit there and watch and just stare at me. Um, so it's, it was something that was entered into. The, the purpose of, of, of the Eucharist was to nourish, you might say, the Christ life uh, in a person. Yeah, that which was believed to be already in them through baptism. And this was one way to nourish that in their, in their lives. Over time, um, you know, the Eucharist, celebration of the Eucharist, again, what we have come to know as the Mass, um, was separated from the meal, most likely from what we understand, because of abuses that were taking place. And those are found in 1 Corinthians um, that you have Paul speaking to that community of, of some of the abuses taking place during this sacred meal that people were supposed to engage in. Uh, so it's like anything else. You know, there's an abuse. you got to somehow respond to it to stop the abuse so that the focus is where it needs to be. But what's also important, as, as we mentioned, you know, when we talked a little bit about tabernacles, um, there were no tabernacles. <laughs> there was no such thing as exposition. Uh, the Eucharist was consumed immediately in the meal, and if there was to be some taken, the Eucharist taken to the sick, that was done immediately. So after it was consumed, then a person immediately left and, and took the Eucharist to those who were sick or not able to join because of some specific reason. Um, because of the separation as time went on, is that it became more of what we would call a stylized meal, the beginnings of ritual. Um, and when you think about by the uh, early, well, no, mid-100s, um, uh, Justin Martyr speaks of that uh, this ritual was something that was very important to the, com to the uh, Christian communities. And the Christian communities were spreading it around, you might say, to where it was something that was relatively easily recognized no matter where you would go. So it was becoming a stylized ritual that, that was spreading and becoming very common among the, um, among the communities. By the 4th century, a Eucharistic ritual uh, and a ritual of receiving communion outside of Mass uh, was on its way of beginning to be established. So you figure it took 400 years for that because I'm sure they, you know, it's like anything, we want to hang on to what we know. Mm -hmm. But the world was changing when you think, one, it was in the 4th century where, you know, the emperor became Catholic. It was in the late 4th century where uh, Christianity became the official uh, world religion, you might mm -hmm. say, or the empire's religion. So, you know, they had to address some of those issues. And, and having a simple meal that were a family gathered simply was not able to be possible anymore. Yikes, it went from if you're Christian, you're dead, to if you're not Christian, you're dead. Yeah, 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 that's kind of the way it worked. You know, and, and adoration, again, when you think of adoration, adoration is so connected with all of this. You know, you change any number of things, 
we probably wouldn't have it. It, it wouldn't exist. Um, we probably would have a different type of, of ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is all based in the, in the history of it. But you're right. It was first the, you know, Christian, Christians were out. And then all of a sudden, Christians are in. And everybody wants to be Christian. Because you're, you're right. You're probably at a serious disadvantage politically, religiously, and every other way if you are not somehow Christian. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, now is that the Christian community, you might say, can demand, make a few few more demands because now they got an army to back them up. You know, you would you wonder sometimes if the emperor hadn't become Christian, hadn't been baptized, if it hadn't become a state religion, you kind of wonder where we would be today. Um, when you got an army to back things up, that takes hold a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you kind of wonder where would we be? Would we have lived it so well? It would have become the world, the vast world religion it has become. And in the history, you also recognize the terrible things done in Jesus' name um, because we could, not because we should have, because we could. But that's all part of it, mm-hmm. it's all part of the history. So when you look at this then, by the again, by the 4th century, is that you have St. Augustine, who speaks again in his, some of his writings, of the established um, uh, rituals that that uh, concern that helped shape and form what we have come to know as Eucharistic adoration. Um, due to some major shifts in theology and all of that, is that people basically stopped receiving communion. They just plain stopped. Hmm. Um, there are a number of reasons why, which then lead into why adoration also, is that the Eucharist had become extremely important. The history was you were receiving the body of Christ. But like anything else, history also has some quirks. And due to some of the history is that what happens is that people simply stop receiving Eucharist, which leads to eventually your Easter duty because they had to get people back to at least receiving communion once a year. Hmm. So the Easter duty is not about reconciliation. There was a presumption that you had sinned over the past year. So before you received your Easter duty, communion, you'd better go to confession. Sure. Um, so why, why did they stop? One, you had the heresies of Docetism, Arianism. Uh, one says that Jesus was only divine in a human shell. The others say that he was, you know, uh, it was an emphasis. Arianism was an emphasis on the humanity of Christ to the virtual exclusion of, of his divinity. Okay, um, so you have several heresies going on. Eucharist also was separated from the act of dining where people went and participated now to an official state ritual, you might say. Well, when you think of the time and the day and the age, who was going to participate in an official state ritual? Not the poor. Mm -mm. Okay? 
So, um, so with this, the when the acts of dining, then when that was taken away, the ritual action was only for special people who could perform it. It became the ex almost the exclusive realm of the clergy and of the wealthy. The poor were relegated to the back. Ritual became then pretty much the only way it was expressed. Um, not to mention another reason was is that Latin was no longer the, la the language of the masses. When you think about, think about it, is that it went from Aramaic to Hebrew to Greek to Latin. And all of those languages were changed because the because nobody could, you know, or only a few could speak those languages after a time. And what happened again, because here again, power in politics, is that Latin became now the official language. When at a time when only the very well-educated, the wealthy, and the well-educated clergy, because many clergy couldn't speak it either, <laughs> is that now it became the official language which only the powerful and the chosen could speak. When natural progression should have had it, where the Latin would have been let go and would have gone into other languages over yeah. time. Um, but Italian, eventually. Well, yeah. But when you think about it, talk about how hard it is for an institution to let go of anything and change. <laughs> you know? Yeah. To, to the point where we are today, theoretically, the official language of the church ought to be English. Because that's what the vast majority of the, of the world speaks. Or they speak it at least as a second language. And yet we have language, uh, Latin, not language. We have the Latin language, which I would venture to say very few can, can speak it. And you ask yourself, why? <laughs> that's another question, and that's probably another discussion. Um, more and more regulations came into play. And the more and more there are regulations, the more and more now you separate the haves from the have-nots, the powerful from the powerless, uh, the, the people who are in the in-group from the people who are on the outside. And it became more and more now uh, that which was belonged to the realm of, of the wealthy and the educated. By the ninth century, even with some of the rules and regulations, so in the 800s, is up to this time, pretty much the bread was whatever the bread was, you know, what, what they would eat at a meal. Um, now, as the regulations came in, a special bread, unleavened, um, was needed uh, for, you know, you might say, um, for the ritual. Again, where would you even get unleavened <laughs> bread? Again, you're shrinking your, your crowd. I guess I just thought that came from the Jewish. Wasn't a, wasn't a rule until the 800s. Wow. Again. See, the more you know. Yeah. And so then, and not only that, you had to have a special straw to drink from the chalice, and the reception was only on the tongue. Wait, from the chalice or from well, communion? Well, communion you had to receive the on the pulse. tongue. Okay. But then you had to drink from a special straw from the chalice. Did now, everyone have their own special straw? Uh, no. That sounds worse. First of all, again, only a few could drink 
from that because mm. they were special. <laughs> is that so? It's a special special straw. Yes, and so <laughs> communion was not given out to everybody. It was either only received by the clergy, mm-hmm. or the clergy and the royalty, the powerful that would attend mass. Just because the common folk were taught you can't receive because you are not worthy. The people that are worthy are the people who have power. It's totally what Jesus said, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but think about how how as the system became bigger and bigger and bigger and more powerful, mm-hmm. the the very people that Jesus spoke to, the very people Jesus dined with are the very people that were now excluded. And the people that Jesus railed against every now and then, the people that he he told, you know, you better be careful what you're doing, are now the people who are the special ones. So communion was not given to everybody in the church by any stretch. And so so as as the with these theologies and reasons is that more and more and more and more people be, became the in that group of who was not included. And so the only way they were able to, in a sense, uh, to even see the Eucharist um, was during the Mass when it was held up in, in an elevation or, uh, you know, some means of that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they were not even permitted to be in a place in the church to where they could see it. And, and so there was no participation at all because... They couldn't understand what was going on. They were seated in a place where they couldn't even see it. You know, you've been in some of the churches. You know how long and how mm-hmm. big those things are. Is that it would be like sitting in the in the upper bleachers trying to watch uh, a ball game in the old Bradley Center. You know, you couldn't even see who was on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's that's you were just present. You were not there to participate. So is that when adoration started then? That's the beginnings of it. Because, and here's the reason why. Okay. Is that what happened is that, and, and, and this is what's important, is that it started, um, let's see. So just a little bit of with uh, reservation. Reservation, because we go back to a little bit what we talked about in, in tabernacles. Reservation now uh, was in tabernacles, starting to be in tabernacles. And uh, it was only for the sick, of course. Uh so slowly, now you had the beginnings of private devotion where people would go in the church. They knew the tabernacle was back there someplace. Mm. And so they would begin to have more of a private devotion. They were never going to receive it. So uh, even if they did get sick, if there was a priest who would even come to them because they were poor, is that uh, the closest they could get was probably in front of a tabernacle. So now it slowly shifts to a private devotion for the vast majority of the people. What became, this became known as visiting the Blessed Sacrament. That terminology started to be used around the 13th century or the 1200s. Eucharistic processions were were starting to be uh, used because it was, again, one of the only ways that, um, and this was in the, in the 1000s, 
it was one of the only ways that a person may actually see the Blessed Sacrament. These processions, which were performed much ways in Germany, is that um, were more for practicality of moving the Blessed Sacrament from one spot to another. What grew around them were all sorts of Eucharistic procession and some of the initial, initial stages or practices of, of adoration mm -hmm. because they got a glimpse, you know, of, of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, in fact, this whole process became refer, uh, was referred to as an ocular communion. <laughs> that was as close as they were going to get. An ocular communion. Um, because people were kept as far away as possible, so they might be on a balcony or whatever, as the Blessed Sacrament would, you know, sometimes was in a monstrance, or, or even if it was in a ciboria, it was as close as they were going to get. Oh my gosh. So when you, when you have, you know, what is now forms of exposition, so, so we have, you know, terminology, you have some of the history, uh, you have some of the, you know, uh, forms or early, early stages of all of this. You, you come to, you might say, what are now what we would call, from our vantage point, because we would recognize it, we would call forms of actual exposition. Now, should we leave it there and let people wonder what forms of exposition are and pick it up next week? We could do that, yes. <laughs> All right, well, we are going to leave it there on a cliffhanger about forms of exposition because Father has a lot to tell us about adoration, so we will pick it up again next week. If you would like to send us an email, feel free, holyangelswb at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, otherwise, we hope you enjoyed that, and we hope you come back next week to hear more about adoration. Uh, thanks, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>